Thank you for listening to the teaching podcast of Muncie First Church. If you would like to know more about us, go to MuncieFirstChurch.com. Or if you would like to support a ministry, go to the giving page, MuncieFirstChurch.com slash give. Well, let's jump into the teaching from this last week. Let's pray together. Father, right now, I'm just thankful for your presence in this place. Thankful for your goodness thankful for your love. Lord, we have, we have experienced your love this week. Throughout the week, we have met you in different places, and you have spoken into our life and into our hearts. And we came together today for one reason, that's to celebrate Jesus. We didn't come here for anything else. Lord, we celebrate you through the connections we have with our friends. We celebrate you through the music. We celebrate you through the lessons we might have learned in a, in a small group. We, we celebrate you in the message we're getting ready to hear now. We celebrate you in the fall party with the kids, Lord, because you are good. And we are just so blessed. And right now, Lord, I just ask that you would just take over in this place, that your Holy Spirit would become so real and so evident that there would be no mistaking that you are here with us. Today, Lord, we need you. We need a fresh visit of your Holy Spirit. We need your presence today. Lord, I know that there are things going on in every person's life today, right now, that they could say, well, I had this on my mind. Lord, would you clear our minds right now? Would you give us the faith to just lay whatever's on our hearts in your lap right now so that we can hear your voice, so that we can trust you? Lord, thank you for each person who's here. Thank you for their, uh, their willingness and their faithfulness in being here. Lord, we love you, and we praise you for today. And we need you, and we invite you. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you have your Bibles, take them and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I'm going to read from the message again today. And uh, we'll just be wrapping up our series on, uh, on Corinthians next week. Uh, Pastor Ian is going to uh, do a, start a two-week uh, sermon series out of James, and, and you're going to enjoy that. Uh, but I want to wrap this up today, and I think there's some important things that Paul was trying to teach. And one of the things that's hit me as I have been reading, and, and when I'm trying to do a series out of a, a certain passage or out of certain books in the Bible, I try to read through it over and over and over again, and that's what I've done. And I've read this, I don't know how many times through Corinthians, and what began to appear and, and jump out at me was that Paul was talking about divisions all through it. He was talking about the problems, the struggles, the divisions that were going on inside the church, how they were pulling, a, pulling apart, pulling themselves apart from from what they really should have been doing. It was divided. They were all divided up. And, and he was saying, that's not how we're supposed to be. That's not a way that I want the Christian church. The, I don't, Christ is not divided. He's not a piece of him here and a piece of him here. He is whole and complete, and he wants his church, his body, to be whole and complete. So he goes in chapter 11, verse 17 is where I want to start. He says this, regarding this next item, I'm not at all pleased. I'm getting the picture that when you meet together, it brings out your worst side instead of your best. And first, I get this report on your divisiveness, competing with, criticizing each other. And I'm reluctant to believe it, but there it is. The best that can be said for it is that the testing process will bring truth into the open and confirm it. And then I find that you bring your divisions to worship. You come together, and instead of eating the Lord's Supper, you bring a lot of food from the outside and make pigs of yourselves. Some are left out and you go home hungry. Others have to be carried out too drunk to walk. And I can't believe it. 
Don't you have your own homes to eat and drink in? Why would you stoop to desecrating God's church? Why would you actually shame God's poor? I never would have believed you would stoop to this. And I'm not going to stand by and say nothing. Let me go over with you again exactly what goes on in the Lord's Supper and why it's so centrally important. I received my instruction from the master himself and passed them on to you. The master, Jesus, on the night of his betrayal, took bread and having given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. Do this to remember me. And after supper, he did the same thing with the cup. The cup is my blood, my new covenant with you. Each time you drink this cup, remember me. And what you must solemnly realize is that every time you eat this bread and every time you drink this cup, you reenact in your words and actions the death of the master. You will be drawn back to this meal again and again until the master returns. <coughs> and you must never let familiarity breed contempt. Anyone who eats the bread or drinks the cup uh, of the master irreverently is like part of the crowd that jeered and spit on him at his death. Is that the kind of remembrance you want to be a part of? Examine your motives. Test your heart. Come to this meal in awe. If you give no thought or worse, don't care about the broken body of the master when you eat and drink. You're running the risk of serious consequences. That's why so many of you even now are listless and sick and others have gone on to an early grave. If we get this straight now, we won't have to be straightened out later on. Better to be confronted by the master now than to face a fiery confrontation later. So my friends, when you come together to the Lord's table, be reverent and courteous with one another. If you're so hungry you can't wait to be served, go home, get a sandwich. By no means risk turning this meal into an eating and drinking binge or a family squabble. It's a spiritual meal, a love feast. I love that. I love the way he writes. Uh, Eugene Peterson takes those words that are in the Bible and he just makes them so understandable and you feel like you're hearing a letter from someone and you know, you're sitting at your own table and somebody's talking to you about some things. And that's why I love it so much and that's why I read it from time to time. I want to ask you a question this morning. It's football season. Got to watch my first football game this week. It was fun. I enjoyed it. Got to go out and see Westdale play and it was really neat and enjoyed seeing uh, some from our church play in that and it was really a blast. Let me ask you a question. What's the most important person on a football team? Are you sure? I mean, who's the most important person on a football team? What's the most important position? Now, many will say the quarterback. I'm finally hearing that from a few people. The quarterback, quarterback. Oh, you got to have the quarterback. In the NFL right now, I mean, they will tell you, if you don't have the franchise quarterback, you pretty much are just kind of like lost. You're not going to win the Super Bowl without the franchise quarterback. Got to have the franchise quarterback. But let me ask you a question. How do you think Andrew Luck feels? He was drafted, number one. He was the ultimate franchise quarterback he was going to be it they were talking about not would the Colts win another Super Bowl but how many more Super Bowls would the Colts win and they were so excited that the leadership of the Colts team decided not to draft anybody to help him basically I mean they kept drafting receivers but they never drafted any O linemen offensive linemen ask Andrew how important he thinks offensive linemen are now Andrew Luck, for his first few seasons, did okay. But a few years ago, he got tackled, lacerated a kidney, ruptured his spleen, got a concussion. He was out. He finally said he came back from that, couldn't throw, found out he'd also torn the labrum in his shoulder. 
They said, oh, he'll be out through 2016. He'll be back in 2017. How many of you know he never played a down in 2017? And guess what? The Colts still didn't draft any linemen during that time. They just kept messing around. And poor Jacoby, the backup quarterback, set a record last year in the NFL for the most time sacked. That means he was tackled when he had the ball behind the line of scrimmage more times than anybody else ever in the history of the NFL because they had such a horrible line. Well, this year, the NFL draft comes around. Colts have two first-round picks. Guess who they chose with their first two-round picks? Two offensive linemen. Isn't it something? Now that Andrew's back, he's actually got linemen in front of him because you've got to understand something. While the quarterback is, without a doubt, very, very important, the Colts only won four games last year. They stink. They're having trouble. Not only are they not winning Super Bowls, they're not even winning games. They're struggling to even get out of the division. And they've learned that while the quarterback is a very, very, very important position, no doubt about it, so are all the other positions. Every one of them matter. We have a tendency to make ourselves and what we do the most important thing in our situation and organizations. If you start asking people what the most important thing is, they'll say, well, you know, I'm the, I'm the janitor and I'm telling you that place won't run without me. I mean, that's how we look at ourselves. Last week, we talked about divisions in the church. 1 Corinthians 1.10, I said, you must, you know, it says, you must get along with one another. You must be considerate of one another. You must cultivate a life in common. And I started off last week by saying that not everyone who claims to be a follower of Jesus is a follower of Jesus Christ. They claim it, but they don't follow. In Romans chapter 12, verse 2, Paul talks about being transformed by renewing or putting the things of God into our mind. And we know that as we fill our minds with the truth of God and the things of God, our minds are renewed and they are transformed. There is a metamorphosis that takes place. There is uh, uh, something that takes place, and it doesn't take place because we change something on the outside of us, but it's from the inside as we pour God in, as we take God into our lives, as we take in the truth, as we read the Word, as we study the Word, as we begin to live out the Word, as we begin to do the Word, there's a change in us. We, we morph from one thing to another. From the inside out, we are changed. A transformed person is now all about living out the part that is given them by Jesus Christ. They're living out their part. They are doing their part. They're playing their position. Jesus now becomes the focus. It's not them. They're not here to do their thing. They're not here to have their way. They're not here to make sure everything goes the way they want them to. Jesus becomes the focus. Jesus. Jesus is our passion. Not not doing what we want, not getting what we want. Jesus becomes our passion. Jesus becomes our joy. Our joy is not that I get to do what I want to do or I get to do things. Jesus is my joy. It's all about Jesus. It's not about me ever. Now the problem Paul is identifying in the Corinthian church is not too unusual in churches or in families. They're following their carnal sinful natures and it's causing divisions in the church. they, They want what they want when they want it and they want everybody to let them have it. I have a two year old granddaughter. She just turned two. She's a beautiful child. If you didn't see it on Facebook, there's a a video of her praying that is just about the best thing in the world. I don't know why a tiny million people haven't commented on it. It's the most incredible thing I've ever seen. It's wonderful. Just before she prayed that beautiful little prayer on Facebook, she was sitting in her car with her mom and dad, screaming, crying, yelling, and telling them that she wanted her way because she's two. 
And she's full of herself right now. And her carnal nature is starting to bloom and grow. And she's selfish and self-centered because she's two. And you're going, are you talking about a little two-year-old? Yeah. How many of you had a two-year-old and know what I'm talking about? Anybody here? They're a little bit hard to get along with at two. But so are 22-year-olds and 42-year-olds and 52-year-olds who are full of their carnal nature. So they're dividing the church because they're not renewing and filling their minds with Christ. They're, they're, they're filling their minds with what I want to do. They're filling their minds with whatever is going on out here. They're filling their minds with the world and all the stuff in the world. They're not filling their mind with Christ and they're holding themselves up and their part and they're saying, look, I'm important. Look what I'm doing. Look at me. And go back to last week. They were saying, I was baptized by Paul and I was baptized by Apollos and I was baptized by Peter and on and on and on. And they were saying, look at me. I'm more important than you are because he baptized me and he baptized me and on and on. And now they've brought all this striving and division into the actual meaning of the church. And when the church gathered for worship and teaching and instruction and to receive the Lord's Supper, they're all divided. And they're even making the service, the, the gathering about themselves instead of about Jesus. Now, the Lord's Supper in their day was more of an actual meal than when we celebrate it. When we celebrate it, it's, it's right here in the sanctuary. It's brief and, and everything. But, but back when they were living, they would gather for a meal. It was basically a carrion, and they would eat, and they'd fellowship, and it would end in worship and in taking the Lord's Supper and receiving the body of Christ, the blood of Christ. And it, it was a beautiful thing because they would serve each other and they would care for each other. That was the idea. It was supposed to be a love feast, and by that I mean they, they, they ate and they loved each other. They cared for each other. They met each other's needs. It was a chance to show Christ's love by loving each other and serving each other. The people of the church, they're carrying in, but they're not serving those who are unable to serve themselves or are new to the fellowship or who don't have much to bring with them. Rather, they're cutting in line so they can be first. They're filling their plates. They're gorging themselves with food. They're drinking up all the wine and they're behaving like it just doesn't matter if others just don't matter. They were sitting with their friends. Only their favorites, their friends in their group mattered. They had also brought the idea of self-importance and division into the spiritual life of the church. The giving of spiritual gifts is important here. Paul moves from chapter 11 into chapter 12 and he begins to give uh, us ideas on that and show us that the spiritual gifts that are given by the Holy Spirit. They were taking these spiritual gifts that are given by the Holy Spirit and they were saying, look what I've got. I must be more important than you. I do this and you only do that. They're not giving God the credit for those. They are taking them for themselves. The spiritual gifts are given to us by the Holy Spirit. We don't go out and pick them out. It's not like Christmas where I write my list and say, here, God, these are the ones I want. There's no Sears catalog in heaven with the gifts. We just depend on the Holy Spirit to give us what he knows we need and what he knows the church needs. Yeah, there's no Amazon in heaven. I'm going to catch up here now. You know, I was back to Sears. That's when I was a kid. Some of you young ones are going, what's he talking about a catalog? What is he? I mean, <laughs> I get it. I understand that. I'm, I'm very old. The Corinthians were using the gifts that God gave to them. The Holy Spirit had given them to improve their position. To, to, to say, look at me. I'm important. To hold themselves up and say, look at me. 
They bragged, I have the gift of prophecy, I give words of knowledge, I, I give wise counsel, I, I heal the sick, I speak in tongues. And every person was acting as if their gift was most important and made them better or more important than all those around them. They were treating these gifts as if they had earned them or deserved them. They were using them to set their personal worth and value. They were discussing who was most important. And in the process, they were carving even deeper and deeper divisions and separations. You know, the reality is, is the gifts are a gift of grace, right? It's all grace. God gives it to us, and we don't deserve it, don't earn it. He just gives them to us because he loves us. So Paul goes to an illustration that we've heard many times before, but bears repeating for us to think about again. He paints a picture, if you will, through chapter 12 to help them see how foolish they are. And he asks them a question I'd like for you to answer with your thoughts this morning. You don't have to answer it out loud, although if you want to, that's fine. Which part of your body is the most important? Think about it. Which part of your body is the most important? Is it your eyes? Your ears, your nose, your lips. How about your digestive system? Anybody here think your digestive system is important? You don't think about that much until it don't work. I've sat with people who have Crohn's disease or whatever, and their digestive system isn't working. And man, are they happy when it works. How about your lungs or your heart or your feet or your arms? Have you ever met somebody without arms? Try to scratch your nose without arms. How about your reproductive system or your hair? Some of you are laughing right now. Some would say it's not that big a deal. Men and women are glad to have nice hair. Some are saying that's not a big deal. Both of us like to have nice hair. Is there anybody here to say, eh, I would never want hair? No, I think we, even those who don't have hair now and can do without it, say, yeah, it was nice when I had hair. It's especially important for women to have nice hair. It's part of their self-esteem. I've noticed that. Let me ask you something. Would you rather have long, luscious locks or a good digestive system? Think about it. What's that? (laughs) How about hair or a healthy heart? You know? Let me ask you a question. Would you rather have a mouth full of healthy teeth or strong fingernails? I mean, we don't think about things like that, but when you sit around and do a sermon, you do. So, you know, just thought I'd throw those things out there. (laughs) See what my week was like. (laughs) The reality is, is that every part of our body plays an important role, even our hair. Everything works together synergistically. Let me explain that. Each part is working together. Each part is worth more together than it is when it stands alone. Right now, if you have a healthy heart and everything else is dead, somebody else is going to get your heart. They're going to transplant it in somebody who can use it. A woman who has lost her hair would have to deal not only with the loss of her hair, but would have to deal with the psychological issues that come with loss of hair. It's not as big a deal with men 
But even I've met some men, and I can prove this because there's a place called the Hair Loss Center in Indianapolis where men go and pay thousands of dollars to get their hair back because their hair affects how they feel about themselves. Because every part of your body matters. You lop off a finger and you can live without it. But you're diminished. I can live without my hair, but I can't live without my heart. Not all parts are equal, I get that, but all parts are equally important in the sense that they matter. All parts are valuable and necessary for optimal health, even my hair. Loss of anything diminishes me in some way. My feet cannot despise my hands and maintain a healthy body. There cannot be divisions in a healthy body. If my hands say, no, I will not do certain tasks, it's going to get mighty uncomfortable. Like in the bathroom and things. I'm just being kind of plain here today, but you need to hear me and you need to think this clear through. Paul writes, it's obvious that Christ meant for the church to be a complete body. He didn't come to make the body sort of complete. He came to complete the body. He did not design the church to be a big one-dimensional part that is overgrown and has become over-important. The church is not just about apostles. The church is definitely not just about prophets. It's not just about pastors. If your hand had to do what your heart does, you'd be in trouble. You get that? If, if, if in the church there's people who've been given the gift of hands and their hands, and there's another one who's a heart, and then the hands have to start doing the heart's job because the heart says, I don't want to do it anymore, the church is going to die, just like the body. God made the church up of teachers, prophets, pastors, apostles, healers, miracle workers, and others, and all are necessary, and yet the church in Corinth is competing for who and what is the most important. Trust me, pastors are not the most important people in this church. We have a place and we play a role, but it's a very small role. All the others need to be played as well. No one is most important. And Paul says, stop doing this right now. You're dividing the church. You're splitting up the church. And while our church may not be competing in the same way they were in 1 Corinthians and in the Corinthian church, we do find ourselves competing and making some important and others not so important in our churches. We look around and ask the question, if we're not careful, who has money or who sings well or who's been here for a long time or who fits our kind of friend list? We aren't exclusively, or we're, we're exclusive in our friendship instead of being inclusive in our friendship. We don't look around and say, who's sitting by themselves? Let me go find them. Our own brand of competing and making lists of importance is dividing the church and keeping people from Jesus who died for them. We're stopping people from coming in that Jesus died to bring in. And we need to stop. I'm not saying this in a harsh kind of way. I'm saying this to you in love. We need to stop. We need to be very, very careful about what we're doing. Paul tells the Corinthians there's a better way. And he moves on now to chapter 13. And I know I'm covering a lot of ground here, but I don't get another chance with Corinthians, so I'm going to get it done. 
chapter 13, we move on. We're all very familiar with chapter 13. You've probably heard it read at a wedding or two. You've probably seen it on some people's walls, and it gets read at weddings and quoted by all kinds of people. But Paul didn't write it for marriage counseling. It works for that, but that's not why he wrote this. He wrote this because the church was struggling, because there were divisions in the church, because not everybody was living out what they knew to live out. And so he begins to write to them and says, hey, guys, there's a way to do this and to do it right, and let me explain it to you. So he wrote this to guide the church out of its divisiveness and into a place of deep unity and love. He said, if you don't have love, everything I do or you do is just clanging noise. So it really starts back to the beginning of the sermon where there needs to be a transformation of our hearts, where we've got to have an encounter with Jesus Christ, where we need to meet him face to face, and he needs to change who we are from the inside out and begin to change who we are, and we begin to fill up our lives with him, and we begin to fill up our lives with him until his love begins to pour out of us and through us and out of us into other people's lives. We have to have that genuine relationship with Jesus for anything to happen. We need Jesus to help us get our focus off of us and off of our value and what we have accomplished and we need to have him help us get it back on the one who forgave us and saved our soul. Our focus shouldn't even be on those around us. Our focus should be on Jesus and when we get our focus on Jesus then all those around us are easier to love. Much easier to love. And all of our good works, all of our spiritual works, even if I could heal somebody, if, if it's done to bring attention and glory to me, it's just noise. It's, it's just a clanging cymbal out of context and beat. When, when Rich plays his drums up here, the cymbals add to it. But if Rich came up here and just beat those cymbals without any reason or rhyme to it, not in tune or time or, or not along with what we were doing, he just beat on those cymbals, we'd say, that's just a clanging cymbal. If I go over there right now and just begin to hit randomly the cymbals, they're just clanging symbols. Paul wrote, I can speak in the tongues of men and angels. I can heal people. I can work miracles. I could preach great messages. I could prophesy. I could interpret tongues. I could give all my money to feed the poor. I could do shoe giveaways. I could do thousands of people at Christmas time. I could feed thousands and I could raise money for all the charities in town. And by the way, we're doing all those things. And I'm thankful for it don't hear he doesn't want us to do those things because if that's what you're getting from this then go on home right now because that's not what i said but if i do those things to get recognition and if i do those things to get likes on facebook and if i do those things to gain a place of importance then i am fingernail scraping on a chalkboard do you understand what i'm saying no love no reason, no purpose, no value to it. If I'm doing it for the wrong reasons, then stop doing it completely. Love is not about how I feel. Because sometimes when I get up in the morning and I go down to the mission at 7 o'clock in the morning and carry my eggs in there and start breaking up 15 dozen eggs in a bowl, I don't feel like doing it. I don't particularly care about those guys right then. I care about sleeping, and I'm not getting to. But I do it because Christ loved me, and he asked me to love them, and I make a choice to love them. Love is a choice. It's an overflow of thankfulness in my heart. Because sometimes on 
December, first Saturday in December, when it's time to go out to people's homes that I don't know and take them presents that they may not even appreciate. And I'm in my truck and I'm going over there and I got other things I could be doing. I don't want to, but I do it because Christ first loved me. And it's an overflow of thanksgiving in my heart because I'm filled with Jesus, because I want to be filled with Jesus, because I keep looking and letting him transform my mind. He keeps filling me with himself. And see, love is what pours out when I get filled up with Jesus and I'm transformed. I'm not perfect. My wife can tell you yesterday I was less than perfect. I, I, I didn't do everything exactly right. And I probably won't today either because this transformation doesn't make me perfect. But it does make me love. And it does fill me with Jesus. And Jesus hopefully begins to pour out of my life. And love pours out when I get filled up and I'm transformed. And now I can love you. I can love you not because you're pretty, not because you have money, not because you smell good, not because you're nice people, but I can love you because he first loved me. Amazing. I think about that. I look back on my life, I reflect back on who I am and what I've been all my life, and I go, God, why do you love me? I've been so unlovable. But he loves me. You know, Philippians 2, we're showing what love looks like. Paul wrote this too, and he writes it concerning Jesus. And you know this scripture too, but it's just so powerful, and I just want to give you a little bit of it. Jesus did not consider himself, or did not consider being equal with God, something to be held on to or grasp hold of. Jesus is in every way equal with God. He was there in heaven with God. He is there with God. And he says, Paul says, Christ did not consider being equal with God, something to grasp hold of and hang on to. But instead, he emptied himself, poured himself out, made himself nothing, took on the form, the very nature of a servant. He crammed himself into a man. Think about it. And now we become like the one we watch. We become like him. We empty ourselves of all of ourself, of all of our selfishness, of all of our wanting to be the big shot, of all the things that, we, that drive us. We empty ourselves and we take on the form of a servant and we act like Jesus with other people. We begin to be poured out in their lives. And we demonstrate love by loving those around us, by loving the world, by pouring ourselves out, by emptying ourselves. We go to those little children at the shoe day and they're so excited. And you pour and you pour. And when you get done, you walk out exhausted and there's not much love you left. And you go, thank you, Jesus, because I had a chance to care about somebody else. Or you go to the mission or you go out on the streets and somebody needs help and you stop and you help them and you care for them and you pour Jesus into them. Or you meet somebody who's sick and you go to them and you lay hands on them and you pray for them and you care for them and you show them that you love them and even if they don't get up and walk away healed, even if not, they know the love of Jesus because you've loved them. You have been Jesus in their midst. That's life-changing stuff right there. 
See, love never gives up on others. It doesn't look around the room and say, I want to be friends with him and her and him. He goes, I want all of them. I don't give up on anyone. They're all his children. And it cares more for the lost than it does for itself. It says, I know I'm tired. I know I don't have the money. I know that there's a lot of things, but I'm going to do it because God did it for me. And he will take care of me. He will show me. He will bring me through this. Love doesn't strut and post things on Facebook so that everybody can see it. It goes into quiet places. It goes into nursing homes. It goes places where no one else wants to go. And it gets down on its knees and it serves when no one's looking. And no one ever knows, like a lot of you do. And like all of us should. And love never gets a swelled head. And it doesn't see me as first. And it never gets angry when it doesn't get its way. And it doesn't keep score to see who got the most. And it never reveals when someone else fails, or revels when someone else fails. Love comes from being transformed by renewing your mind. It comes from fixing your gaze on Jesus. Let me ask you a question today. Where do you have your gaze fixed? The next car, the next house, a bigger job, more stuff, another spouse, and uh, someone that's not your spouse that you shouldn't have your gaze fixed on? You've got to fix your gaze on Jesus. Love comes from letting Jesus get greater while I die. So I got one more question I want to ask you. Simple question. Do you love like this? Do you love like this? See, this is how Jesus loved. And our goal, as I said last week, is not to get to heaven. Oh, we'll get there. But that's not the goal. That's not the goal at all. The goal is to take on the very nature of Christ. Are you taking on the nature of Christ? Because the only way you can take on the nature of Christ is get your eyes fixed on Christ. Jesus said, what I see my Father do, I can do. I do. And ours needs to be what I see Jesus do. I do. And the only way you're going to see what Jesus does is get your mind, your thoughts, your eyes fixed on him. This is the measure of that goal. Do you love even those in this church, at work, in this world, like this, like Jesus did. Nathan's going to come up and lead us in closing. I don't know. I feel really strongly God gave me that message. And I don't believe he's given me that just for me. I mean, maybe. If so, this was very good for me, and I appreciate you sitting and listening while I had my counseling session with the Holy Spirit. But I have a feeling he also talked to some other hearts here today. And maybe there's some of us who just need to get up from our seats as Nathan leads this and just go down in front and say, God, I need you. I want to get my eyes back on you. I've got it off on other things. I've let other things get in the way. I haven't been loving like that. I haven't been giving myself away to others. I haven't loved like you want me to love. And I want to start doing that again. I want to get back to that. So let's stand together, and as we sing this, if anybody wants to pray, the altars are open, and we'll pray with you. Love to have you come and be a part of that. If not, that's okay, too. God is in charge. Amen? Amen. Father, right now, as uh, we uh, move into this time of response, 
My prayer is, is that many here would hear the voice. They'd start to get their eyes fixed on you. Not their comfort, not what they want, not how they would like to do things, but get it fixed on you. So Lord, right now, speak to hearts. And as he speaks to you, your part is, I'll answer yes, and I will do what you ask. In Jesus' name, amen. cost us a lot to love like Jesus did. It cost him everything, but he still did it. 
And he's calling us to do that same thing. And I'm asking you right now, get your eyes, get your face, get your gaze off of the things of the world. Get your eyes, get your gaze off of what someone's done to you. Get your eyes, get your gaze off of something that happened a long time ago. And get your eyes, get your thoughts, get your mind focused on Jesus. And let the love of Jesus Christ so fill you and so overwhelm you that the love begins to pour out to all those that you come in contact with. That God begins to use you to change your world around you because you love like Jesus loves. And I got to tell you, you're going to get taken advantage of. I got to tell you, you're going to get hurt. I'm going to tell you that there's going to be times when you're going to go, man, this hurts so much and it's costing so much. But I got to tell you that it's worth it. Every moment of it, it's worth it. It's worth it. It's worth it. And it's the only way that we're going to see this world get changed. I can promise you that. We can, we got some things we can do physically ourselves, but nothing is going to change this world until we begin to love like Jesus did. I believe that today. Father, right now, we're praying here at this altar. There are people praying right now. They're seeking you. They're counting up the costs and they're saying you are worthy and you're worth it. And they're asking you to come into their lives in a new and special and fresh way. They're asking you to refill them with your love. They're asking you to help them to get their minds, their thoughts, their focus back on the things that really matter. Lord, I'm asking you right now to just meet each and every person here today, right now, fresh and new. Lord, I'm asking for those who are standing in the congregation, all of us right now, Lord, help us to retune, to refocus our minds, our thoughts on you. Get them off of all the things of the world. Get them off of our problems. Get them off of how things are going or how somebody does something to us or with us and help us to get our thoughts and our minds focused directly on you, Lord, so that we can love and we can pour out love on this world. Lord, I believe that if this group of people, this group right here meeting in the church, the congregation this morning that's just here right now, if we left here filled with the Holy Spirit and begin to love the way that Jesus loved and begin to pour out our love on this community, Lord, it would make a huge difference. It would just change everything. So Lord, help us right now. We're counting up the costs and you are worth it. You're worth it. We love you. We praise you. And we ask you to just be with us in all that we do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Keep your eyes focused on Him this week. Let Him transform your heart, your mind, and your life. Amen. Amen. Small group leaders, we need you to get over here as soon as possible.